Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. This podcast primarily focuses on pro wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and we're going to be smack in the middle of that today. We're going to talk about the NWA in the spring of 1988, 35 years ago. We've got the first clash of the champions. We've got the Crockett Cup coming up all kinds of stuff going on but before i get into that i want to bring in my co-host my occasional co-host steve generelli steve how are you today i'm doing great john and it's uh good to be back and i'm excited to talk about that very first clash of the champions Yes, and a couple of things before we get rolling. Steve, I didn't tell you this before the show started because I want to tell you while I'm telling everyone else, I am fine. If I have a night where I don't get a lot of sleep, like four or five hours, I'm fine. If I do it consecutive nights, I'm in a little bit of trouble after that, and that's what I've done today. I'm a little bit tired because I haven't slept in like two – well, I haven't slept well since Thursday night, and it's Sunday afternoon. But, hey, my deal is this. You, the audience, you're giving me 60 minutes. I'm going to give you my very best 60 minutes starting right now. Steve, this was originally going to be a review of the first Clash of the Champions, right? Right. I'm watching it. I'm enjoying it. I'm taking notes. I'm I'm playing by my policy where I'm not going to read what anyone else had to say until I am done watching and done taking my notes. And then it dawns on me. I'm like, all of this feels a little bit familiar. Like, didn't I say something like this recently? And I check in episode 91, which is like three and a half years old, we did a review of the first Clash of the Champions. So we'll talk a little bit about that, but we'll also talk about the NWA in general, spring of 1988. But uh, Steve, you watched the Clash. What did you think of it? Well, it was kind of the anti-WrestleMania um, 4. I mean, WrestleMania Yes, you, you kept waiting for something to happen. You you were kind of down in the dumps watching it. This show, uh, I, I really like the, what the, uh, Jim Crockett Promotions tried to do. I feel like they, they threw everything up against the wall that they thought would work. And most of the times it did work. That Clash of the Champions had two Match of the Year candidates. I had forgotten how crazy good that Midnight Express against Fantastics match was. And then, of course, Ric Flair against Sting. On top of that, you have another four-star match with Lex Luger and Barry Windham against Arn Anderson and Barry Windham. Then you've got the Barbed Wire match, and okay, that kind of sucked, but it was over with quickly. And Jim Garvin against Kevin Sullivan, I think I liked it more than most people. Yeah, I, I mean, each match that you mentioned was really exciting, and uh, I, I thought um, <laughs> I thought it was you know interesting some of the stuff they did in between the matches too. I mean, you had uh, um, you had Al Perez with Gary Hart. I mean, uh, you know that was something new. Uh, Gary Hart in the NWA, uh, and what what are your thoughts on that little uh, interview segment that they had on the show? Well, I have many thoughts. I mean, Nikita Koloff makes his return. Surprise. Dr. Death Steve Williams, we kind of knew he was coming back, but he, he'd been gone for a while. And then Al Perez and Gary Hart. And what did these three debuts all have in common? 
they all talked about Dusty Rhodes nonstop. <laughs> well, he did, right? It, it, that, that's a bad sign, definitely. And uh, it, it, you know, uh, it, as it as it played out, you know, as time would would tell, um, Al Perez ended up having some world championship matches with Ric Flair. And I, I, I don't know if you've heard the story before. I have a feeling you probably have. He was. They were going around the horn with this match, probably like in the B or C towns. And uh, Al Perez didn't mind doing a, a job for Ric Flair, but I guess he he put it out there that he didn't want to do a job in his hometown to Ric Flair, which he lives in Tampa, but the big match was going to be at the Bayfront Center in St. Pete. And he made it known that, no, I'm not going to do a job there to Ric Flair. And when the when the booking sheet came out that night, uh, you know, they, they told him, you're going to have to do the job. And uh, apparently he wanted to just go in the ring and, and to pull the shoot and actually beat Ric Flair in the center of the ring. And I think that was really the end of his run with the company. Uh, have you heard that story? I have heard that story. As a matter of fact, I, I think the story came, comes right from Al Perez that he was not going to do a job in his hometown, which is kind of ridiculous. I mean, the WWF went in a different direction of ridiculous. You would go over everywhere except for your own <laughs> hometown. But, yeah, you know, I, I, I have heard that story. and I've heard Al Perez is as legit as it gets. And, you know, he would he probably could have taken some serious liberties with Ric Flair. Yeah. And actually, a few years ago, I, in our in our Sick to Wrestling Facebook group, I did post a picture of me with Al Perez at a local gym. He still works out here in Tampa at the gym. And um, he's just an incredibly nice guy. And we did talk about the, the wrestling business a little bit. And, and what I gather is he was just too much of a real sincere, nice guy to be in the wrestling business. He uh, I think he ended up with like a 20 year plus run at uh, UPS. And he's doing really well, and he's probably ready to retire, but a really nice guy. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I have never met Al Perez, unlike you. When Al Perez showed up, okay, and he had been in world class for a little while. You know, Before that, he was in Mid-South, but he seemed to find himself in Dallas. And I was looking at, at him as a potential superstar, and I think – you know, I don't, I don't I, I, look, I have a lot of good things to say about Gary Hart. I raved about him when we went over a 1982, 1981, 1982 Georgia show, maybe a year back. But now I'm like, OK, I think Gary Hart's a little bit in the way here. And, you know, I thought the promotion already had enough managers. So when he showed up with Gary Hart, nothing against Gary. But I'm like, OK, you know, what's his role going to be and I, I don't know i guess it's better than putting him with paul jones but they could have put him out there by himself yeah yeah and the interview that they did was, was pretty weak uh i mean uh al perez had a great look but he, he was a little too soft-spoken on the mic uh, and, and steve williams was was had a, a tremendous look but he definitely needed a manager because he was just kind of lacking in the uh appeal when it came to interviews oh uh, right here in my notes Big capital letters, Doc returns, then the word Dusty, and just Doc awful on the mic. He really was. But, but, but he really looks like a million bucks. You know how uh, we would hear uh, Jim Ross continue to put him over for the next 15 years after this as, uh, should be the oh, next yeah. big thing. But uh, at this point, 1988, Steve Williams should have been pushed to the moon by somebody. 
No, I, I was saying, I've, I've said this on the podcast before, I think Steve Williams, you know, they should have turned him heel a lot earlier. I thought, you know, him being in the varsity club made a lot of sense. The, the tag team with Mike Rotunda made a lot of sense. I personally would have put him with Jim Cornette and pushed him to the moon with Cornette as his manager. And I know Cornette was happy uh, just managing the Midnight Express. And I also know that Steve Williams and Bobby Eaton did not always get along. Uh, but it would, be, it would have been like, guys, please just make it work. And I'm glad you mentioned Jim Cornette because I, I think he was definitely one of the standouts on this show. Not, o- not only was that tag team match with the Fantastics uh, and the Midnight Express, you know, four stars for sure, but Cornette was heavily involved in the match. And then he did that really funny uh, little promo with the uh, Eddie Haskell from Leave It to Beaver. And uh, uh, the first thing I thought about seeing Jim Cornette, you know, actually in the ring and, and as a manager, instead of being what we know him as now as the podcaster, Jim Cornette, he looked like kind of the love child of Georgia Haas and uh, uh, Pat, uh, Pat Summit, the basketball coach. He, just, oh, man. He, was, he was just, you know, hilarious. And, you know, a lot of the fans wanted to hate him, but, you know, I, I, I was a fan of his, you know, even though he was supposed to be a heel, I was rooting for him back then too. No, he he was. I mean, he was phenomenal. I think he may have you know, reached his peak in 1988. And the thing was, before that clash with the champions, they had been doing an angle on the, the WTBS show where Jim Cornette was going crazy. He was slowly but surely losing his mind at the hands of the Fantastics, and this match kind of was the culmination of that storyline. Yeah, and the uh, the sheep herders, or not the sheep herders, the uh, the Fantastics uh, had a great feud with uh, the Express. I mean, I think that the, the average fan remembers the Midnight Express against the Rock and Roll Express, but technically, I think that the Fantastics were just as sound. They, they, I mean, they were a a great tag team. I think the best. Midnight Express versus Fantastics match, which is probably on this Clash of the Champions, if not uh, the match they had on Worldwide Wrestling when the Fantastic won the tag team titles. Are, those two matches, I think, are better than any Midnight Express, Rock and Roll Express match I've ever seen. And those two teams had phenomenal matches. And I, I think it's worth noting that uh, the WWF had taken so much trouble to uh, interfere in uh, Starcade with uh, adding the Survivor Series to the lineup. And when the NWA had the bunkhouse stampede from the Nassau Coliseum in January of 88, the WWF put on their first ever Royal Rumble, first one televised at least, in uh, 1988 from Cops Coliseum. And uh, that definitely affected the buy rate for a bunkhouse stampede. But that was a really kind of a doggy show, I think, that bunkhouse stampede. But I think this show really – It was awful. <laughs> this show really there, – There's a reason why we didn't review that show on its 35th anniversary. Well, well it, it, it ties into what you're saying. I mean, Dusty won the bunkhouse stampede, and I think he had won all the previous bunkhouse stampedes. And, I mean – I know they were trying to appeal to the Northeast crowd. They let Larry Zabisco beat Barry Windham for the title. I guess they thought the Northeast Larry still meant something there. And and Dusty and, and Ivan Koloff were like the last two in the stampede. Yeah, they were really popular in the old WWF in the late 70s. I, so I can see why they were maybe doing that. But 
God, it was time to move on. It was it was time to bring on some new people. And, you know, Sting would be the one would come to mind in, in this particular card, this TV uh, Clash of the Champions. Well, I, I have a lot to say about Sting, but if we're talking NWA, Spring 1988, uh, the they had a show at the Boston Garden. They were coming to, to Boston once a year at this point. And the in 1987, they drew like 11,500 with Ric Flair and Barry Windham on top, right? Mm-hmm. They come back a year later, and they draw like 4,000. And on, yeah, it was April 15th, 1988. And they drew four thousand, and they put all of their they put all of their top stars in one match, and it was Dusty Rhodes, Barry Windham, Nikita Koloff, and the Road Warriors in a cage against the Four Horsemen and Ivan Koloff. <laughs> and it's like, what's wrong with this picture? Ivan Koloff, you know, hadn't been with the WWF in five years. You know, he just didn't have the people who were wrestling fans now just knew him as Uncle Ivan. That was it. And uh, to me, that was a major mistake. Koloff really stood out as a guy who should have been in a main event anymore. But you're right. They they're like, oh, it's Boston. It's Ivan Koloff. It's like, you know, no, the, the business has completely changed. You're not going to bring a a music act from 1973 out in 1988, but they, they hadn't figured it out yet. Yeah. Yeah. The times had definitely changed. Uh, you know, like I was saying earlier, they tried so many different things on the show to kind of uh, almost, you know, put a new pressure paint on the uh, NWA and Jim Crockett promotions. But about the only segment I thought that kind of fell flat was the uh, Francis Crockett coming out to uh, show, you, oh, show, God. show you the seeds for the Crockett <laughs> Cup. Now, what's Francis' Francis's relationship? Is that Jim Crockett see, uh, Jr.'s mom? Yeah, I'm not sure. Honestly, I'm not sure. His sister or something. Sister, I would Someone's wife. I don't know. But it was, you're right. I mean, she just did not belong on television. That was an awful segment. Yeah. And, uh, you, you know, it, I mean, as far as, like, the use of celebrities, yeah, I, I guess I understand that the uh, Eddie Haskell is going to be on TBS in this new reboot of Leave it to Beaver, and that's cool. But, and sorry to have him on this show. I don't mind that. But... You know, if you want to have real celebrities, I mean, do you really want to have Patty Mullen, Penthouse Pet of the Month? I mean, can't even get the Playboy uh, Playmate of the Year. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, and you know, what about some real celebrities? You know, I, I don't know why they couldn't have, have brought in. Uh, you know, it was it was almost the beginning of baseball season. Wouldn't it have been great if uh, where Dusty had just had this. Uh, you know, hit uh, Tully with a baseball bat. He could have brought in Dale Murphy for Pete's sake or, or Bob Horner from the Braves. Wouldn't that have picked up a few thousand fans? Bob Horner liked wrestling. Really? Bob Horner was talking about uh, becoming a professional wrestler at some point when there was talk of a baseball strike in 85. It's all coming back to me very quickly. <laughs> Bob Horner was talking about, you know, maybe get, becoming a pro wrestler during a, the 1985 baseball strike. So I think Bob Horner was a phone call away and no, he had not been traded to St. Louis yet. Was he back from Japan? I don't know. I, I don't know. But he, he I, on your wrestling death chart, he would have been uh, somewhere below Bobby Jaggers, I think. <laughs> <laughs> May, oh man, Bob, they, they looked exactly alike. Speaking of the, WTBS show that aired the Saturday before the Clash of the Champions. Uh, they had a hilarious segment with pa- Patty Mullen and Ric Flair. Patty looks about as confused and uncomfortable as a person could possibly ever look on television. But wait, 
they spill the big angle, Steve. And here's where they spill it. Okay, <laughs> here's the big angle. Magnum TA comes out and he's got a baseball bat and Magnum can barely move. Jamal Smith asks, why did they make Magnum TA look so weak when Tully attacked him and Dusty retaliated with a baseball bat? Because Magnum was very weak. He needed a cane to walk. And even with that, he couldn't get around that well. He had uh, his left arm was completely useless. And that's why it was in a, a sling. As far as I know, it, it, it's it's he has still not gotten it back. And and if he hasn't gotten it back yet, well, finishes the story. But, you know, they did the angle where the heels came out and attacked Magnum TA, right? This this angle should have been money in the bank. And the way they did it, J.J. Dillon grabs Magnum from behind and Tully belts him in the head. And Magnum goes down and, and J.J. is like just pillowing this guy all the way to the ground because he has to. You can't let Magnum fall in the condition that he's in. Right. And Dusty comes out. and He's got a baseball bat or Magnum had the bat. Dusty takes the bat that Magnum had and starts wailing on Tully Blanchard and J.J. Dillon. And Jim Crockett comes out, tries to break it up. And, oh, he gets hit accidentally. But they blew that angle. That should have been a million-dollar angle. Oh, my God, a heel went after helpless Magnum T.A. And Dusty got nothing out of it. This is going to be a Dusty bashing episode, people. <laughs> it's the spring of 1988. I can't get around it. Um, we'll get more into the, that in a moment. But they were talking about that angle the next week on TV. Oh, we don't know what's going to happen with Dusty, the United States heavyweight champion. It, it, it just, it just is. Even now, all these years later, it just seems so desperate. I mean, you talk about hot shutting the territory. I mean, I mean, they had already done a, a ton of angles where Dusty got beat up by uh, the crew and make it look good. And I mean, it's just, you know, how much can the fan take at home? You know, watching this. I mean, we all have to suspend disbelief to a degree, but. I mean, you didn't see Hogan going through all these machinations uh, like Dusty did. I mean, it was just no. just a little too ridiculous, I felt. Well, you know, um, the story I have heard, the story I heard back in 1988 was Crockett and Dusty had a sit down after Starcade 87, right? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, it, it, from what I heard, it wasn't a, Dusty, you're going to get fired unless you figure it out. It was like, okay, Dusty, let's figure it out. But whatever you've got in the bank, we can't wait until summer. we got to do it now. And Starcade 87, I've mentioned it on the show, the original plan, uh, if Dusty lost the match, he was going to be you know, out of wrestling for 120 days. But wait. The Midnight Rider was was magically going to pe to appear. <laughs> they decided after Starcade that they could not wait to turn Lex Luger. They needed to turn him now. They needed the the Flair Luger match ASAP. So they moved the Midnight Rider angle, and uh, I believe. Six days after the Clash of the Champions, they announced that Dusty had been suspended for 90 days for inadvertently hitting Jim Crockett Sr. with a baseball bat, right? Mm -hmm. Think about all the shenanigans that go on in pro wrestling. <laughs> he gets 90 days for this. Yeah, it, it, it was just beyond belief. And uh, uh, before we get back to Dusty bashing, uh, <laughs> what did you think, what did you think <laughs> of uh, new look Nikita Koloff, the anti-drug spokesman? Uh, 
It's in my notes somewhere. I don't even need to look it up. Nikita's ghost returns. That's what it looked like. It was Nikita's ghost. He was noticeably smaller. I remember watching it that night. We What we did was we we watched WrestleMania 4 live, and then upstairs we had uh, – we had the, the first clash recording and then we watched the first clash. I've talked about it before. I mean, the room came alive as soon as the thing, thing came on. It's like, Oh, we get to have fun watching wrestling now. <laughs> but I remember watching the, you know, seeing Nikita return and I had no idea he was coming back. And I'm just like, you know, what they, they sucked all of the charisma out of him. He, he, you know, and obviously, you know, he was just another guy in 1988 when they brought him back. Well, I'm looking at these results from the bunkhouse stampede from a couple of months earlier. And it says NWA TV champ, Nikita Koloff drew with Bobby Eaton 20 minutes. What, what horrible booking that is. I mean, it, it, for first, why is Nikita Koloff have to have a championship belt? And why is it the TV title? And then why have him going, a 20 minute draw with Bobby Eaton. I mean, I mean, Bobby Eaton's like maybe the best wrestler in the company or, you know, right. One of the top two or three, you know, work rate wise, but you know, if you're trying to put over Nikita is a guy who's like an unstoppable monster, you know, why don't you have him beat somebody within two or three minutes? It doesn't make much sense. Yeah, you're right. Bobby Eaton was an elite worker, easily one of the top 10 in the entire business, and that includes Japan. And I don't know if you saw their their match from the Bunkhouse Stampede pay-per-view. It was awful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it just the, – the booking makes no sense whatsoever. I think Dusty had really um, – he should have been gone by this point. I obviously, should have been gone. Well, I want to mention one thing. We we actually took uh, a mailbag from our Facebook group. We're like, you know, if you have any questions about the NWA from the spring of 1988, Greg Clark asked, why did Sting get the title shot at the first clash instead of Luger, who was feuding with the Horsemen after being kicked out? And this is more about, you know, the the Sting getting that shot. They were saving Lex Luger versus Ric Flair for the Great American Bash. Okay. They wanted you to buy that on pay-per-view. So they're like, okay, well, who can we put Ric Flair in this Clash of the Champions against? And they picked Sting. Now, let me let me explain who Sting was before this, okay? The year before, he was part of Eddie Gilbert's sta- stable, the first family of wrestling. Then they have the split with Eddie Gilbert and Sting. It turns into a mid uh, a mid-card feud. It was a really good feud, but it was still mid-card. Then Sting's role at Starcade 87 was part of the opening six-man tag team match. You could tell uh, Rick Steiner and Sting were the last two guys in this pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. Then the next pay-per-view, Bunkhouse Stampede, Sting is in the dark match opener, teaming with Jimmy Garvin against the Sheep Herders. So this is who Sting is coming into this event. He's just a guy to keep Flair occupied until we get to the Lex Luger feud, right? And on that day, Sting was made a star by Ric Flair. Sting was a different person from the time that match started until the time that match ended. Yeah, that's what this card is probably best remembered for. This is the day that uh, Sting became a known commodity. Just the fact that he survived the 45-minute match with Ric Flair, he became a made man. He became uh, a star to be... uh, 
forever on TBS uh, until uh, until recent years where he's back on TBS with uh, with the new promotion AEW yeah. AEW but uh, but but yeah, I, I did some research too and surprisingly or maybe not surprisingly right near the end of 87 uh, on some house shows they did have maybe three or four Ric Flair versus Sting house show matches I guess just probably to get give them the rub of working with each other and maybe kind of knowing how they work with each other so if this uh, like a match of this type were to come to fruition they'd at least have some you know, ring experience together and uh and, and this was a very good match I I think I mean I I mean I'm looking at it from both perspectives of how I felt back in 1988 watching it and then watching it through my eyes now I think Ric Flair you know really carried him and uh, there was moments in the match where Sting because he wasn't that experienced uh, I felt like he kind of blew up a bit and had to take a little bit of a you know to get in some rest holds to kind of gather himself but uh, Flair Flair carried him through the match I don't think Flair really did anything that remarkable I mean he'd have way way better matches with Steamboat and other you know other highly qualified workers in the future but uh, this was a great match for sting just to be able to you know hold his own with the flair even in a kayfabe sense very true and coming out of the show it felt like the nwa was in itself was in a far better spot than it was coming in uh now you've established Sting is a a top guy now. You've got Sting, Barry Windham, and Lex Luger on the babyface side. They all seem like they're in a position to leapfrog Dusty Rhodes. And Dusty is savvy. He knows what he's doing. You know, they have... Throughout the show, there were Dusty Rhodes references. What's going to happen to Dusty after what transpired yesterday? (laughs) And I can't help but think they did this on purpose. They put the title, the tag team titles on Barry Windham and Lex Luger. I mean, Steve, did the really big stars ever carry the tag team titles? When was the last time Ric Flair was the tag team champion? When was the last time Dusty Rhodes was a tag team champion? Was Hulk Hogan ever a tag team champion? Randy Savage, Roddy Piper? No. So I think this is Dusty once again kind of hanging on to that top spot best as he can. Yeah, and as time would go on a few months later, I think they – (laughs) <laughs> went as far as having Ron Garvin turn on Dusty. So, I mean, it, they sure it, did. Just, it just went on and on and on like a mushroom cloud of how can we keep Dusty in, in the center of things? And uh, and I think we, we do have to take a moment to uh, uh, talk about that match with uh, Luger and Wyndham against Tully and Arn. I mean, we always hear uh, our fellow smart fans talk about how terrible Lex Luger was. But uh, here he is, only a couple of years into his career, holding his own with three really top, top workers. I mean, yeah, he was doing a lot of clotheslines. He wasn't doing a ton of wrestling, but to me, he looked fine. He he held his own in this match. I I defend Lex Luger. The, The 1988 and 1989 version of Lex Luger, he had turned the corner. He cared about what he was doing. He uh, obviously saw that he could make a lot of money in this business, you know, especially compared to anything else he's going to be doing in life, if he's just competent at it. And he worked hard to get good at it. And, I mean, let's throw the 1990 version of Lex Luger in there. And then, you know, look, every every person out there, you're going to feel like 
your morale is going to be down at some point. And I, I have the feeling that just life in the NWA just kind of wore on Lex Luger. You know, all, not only all of the travel, all of the politics, all of the BS. And at some point, I want to say certainly by the end of 1990, it was just a paycheck for Lex Luger. And he was mailing it in from now on. But before that, I mean, go look, you know, look at Lex's matches. He was getting better. He was trying. Yeah, I, I definitely see a lot of good matches from him uh, in this time frame we're talking about. And, and I enjoyed him as a performer. I mean, the WWF run, maybe not so much, but I enjoyed him a lot when he came back uh, in the late 90s uh, during the Monday Night War period. I really enjoyed him there. Uh, and he seemed, uh, when he was with Elizabeth at the very end, uh, he seemed uh, to be one of the like last men standing out of the old uh, uh, core guys that came in at the beginning of the Monday Night War. So he really lasted to really? almost the very end. But um, uh, why, don't we, uh, why don't we answer some of these great questions that are awaiting us from the Facebook group? Well, I'll tell you, I, I would like to do that. And, and just to show that, that Steve and I are not alone in this, let me let me read a bunch of the questions that we got now. I had the questions open for about an hour, okay? And here are, let me just read some of the questions we have. Dan Potts, who would you have replaced Dusty with as Booker? Lance O'Donnell, with all of the backlash around Starcade 88, say Jim Crockett decides to replace Dusty as Booker in early 88, who could have made a difference <laughs> and brought freshness to promotion? Ian Totten, should Dusty have been removed as Booker once the Midnight Rider failed? If so, who would you take? Who would you put in his place? Uh, let me see. We have other people answering the question, but, uh, you know, uh, TJ Zanos, as bad as Midnight Rider, the Midnight Rider retread was, ultimately, was it worth it? Uh, because Barry Windham became arguably the best version of Barry Windham. And then Jamie Ward says, I think we would have gotten uh, pro wrestling from Florida a year earlier. Dusty wouldn't have stayed. Christian Body, <laughs> I think all have a shelf life of sorts kind of like Jim Cornette says how can we miss you if you don't go away it seems like Dusty's time had passed or at minimum needed a break to recharge Steve do the 35 year old tears of the smart fans do they age like fine wine or like something else we're not my point being Steve and I aren't the only ones who are going to be kicking around Dusty for the next half hour now, it, it seems like uh, Stick to Wrestling fans really wanted Dusty out and, and quickly. And uh, I, when, I'm, when I ask you the, the question that a lot of these fellows are asking, uh, who, in your opinion, should have replaced D Dusty as the booker? Uh, it's almost like we planned the show out when we didn't, because I put more thought into that question than just, um, maybe you know any other, not just this week, <laughs> but in general. And I have two answers for your question, okay? Mm -hmm. Answer number one is the 1988 version of me. I would have said, <laughs> you, no other choice, bring in Bill Watts. There's no other second option. You have to bring in Bill Watts. Right. I now understand, Steve, that that would have brought some problems, okay? Bill Watts had only been out of the business for a year, so when he came back in, in 1992, Bill Watts hadn't watched wrestling in five years. He was still booking wrestling like it was the mid-80s, and newsflash, it wasn't. And Bill, immediately, you could see it wasn't going to work. But in 88, could it have worked? It could have. But one issue with Bill Watts, 
Bill Watts was used to running the show. He was used to being the owner. And when you own a company, you can do whatever you want. That's no longer, that wasn't the case in 92, and that is not the case in 1988. He would have had to answer to someone. Could he have? I'm not sure. I'm leaning towards yes, but that would have been a challenge. Um, how about you, Steve? What, what would the 1988 version of Steve Generelli have said about this, or, or do you know? I guess we're we're kind of a, a like-minded. Uh, Bill Watts was only a few months removed from uh, selling the UWF to Crockett, so he he, in my opinion, would have been the easiest choice to go with because he may have been able to, you know, salvage some of that uh, UWF goodness that was still there that seemed to be blowing in the wind. I mean, the other only other choice, rather than think about uh, older guys from the past. Maybe an Eddie Gilbert type, somebody who was younger, who had new ideas, who uh, maybe would have brought a lot to the table. But, you know, it just seemed like everything was so cliquish. I mean, I think Jim Crockett only thought that Dusty was the only man on earth that could have booked the promotion and run things the way he did and have these big, larger-than-life ideas. I don't think Jim Crockett trusted anyone else other than Dusty, and I think that's why he was so... Uh, reluctant to make that change that he needed to make. All right, couple of things, and, and you, you, Steve, you just you know gave me a, you just gave me a whole lot of you just put the the ball on the tee for me a couple of places. Eddie Gilbert was very creative as he would go on to show us when he took over Continental summer of 1988. He had booked the UWF previously and booked it quite well in my opinion. But Steve, you you used the right word. Oh, and one other thing about Eddie, he grew up in a wrestling family, mm-hmm. but the word you used is clickish, and Eddie was in the wrong click, or perhaps better put, he was not in the right click. And I, I don't think, even though, like I said, he had all those positives, he had booked before, he had just been with the company, he had left recently, so you know he knew his way around, but I just don't think the locker room would have accepted him as a leader. and. As far as Dusty goes, you know, Dusty booked JCP into the ground, okay? He had another, like, six months left of, you know, not overall overall terrible booking. Not every decision was horrible, but overall it was not good. And even when he booked, after he booked Jim Crockett's uh, company into the ground, Jim Crockett in 1989 and 1990 was writing letters to people at WTBS saying, there's only one person who can turn this around, and and he's Dusty Rhodes. (laughs) He was. And he finally convinced them at the end of 1990 to take him back and make him the booker again. Yeah, it's just amazing how... um the, the control that Dusty had over Jim Crockett. I mean, I mean, just the the belief that Jim Crockett had in Dusty. I mean, <laughs> the relationship was so so close and so intrinsically together. I mean, I, I can see why he didn't want to make any changes because he felt he felt uh, Dusty was Jesus. I mean, he didn't he couldn't yeah. make any changes. I mean, you know, Ian wrote, writes the question, you know, should Dusty have been removed as Booker once the Midnight Rider failed? If I'm Jim Crockett, I sit down with Dusty again after the Midnight Rider failed. Now, let me tell you, let me take a step back before I tell you what my, the 2023 version of John McAdam would have would have put in as Booker. 
Dusty, if you go back and look at uh, the WTBS World Championship Wrestling while they were doing the Midnight Rider Angle or NWA Pro Wrestling or Worldwide Wrestling, every single interview, whether it be from Kevin Sullivan, who talked about, I know who the Midnight Rider is. He terrorized everyone in Florida in 1983. We are not safe. J.J. Dillon with the Horseman would come out and say the same thing. But wait, Lex Luger and Sting and Barry Windham and Ron Garvin, they come out and all they talk about is the Midnight Rider. It was beyond crazy. If you don't believe me, it's on Peacock. Just take a look at an episode of World Championship Wrestling from April of 1988. This thing got pushed as hard as you could push things and then add even more push. It was insane. And it it completely failed. It, it added no interest, and they just dumped the angle in about six weeks and brought Dusty back as if nothing had happened. At that point, if I'm Jim Crockett, you know, I sit Dusty down. I'm like, look, Dusty, obviously you gave it your best shot. It didn't work out. We need to replace you as head of creative. I'm sorry. That's not easy for me to say. I'm not saying you'll never be head of creative again, but you know, we need to change something. I want you to stay with the company. I know that's not always easy, but I still want you out there as a performer, if you will. Yeah, I, I guess I, I, I just did too much talk. No, no, <laughs> no. I, I just think as far as uh, Jim Crockett's expectation, you know, m- maybe in his mind, he felt that, you know, Dusty Rhodes between the years of 86 to early 80, sorry, uh, 84 to early uh, 87 took me to places I never thought I would go, like took this promotion to the heights that I never thought it could reach. And so despite these feelings, I think he still thinks that Dusty can get him back there. But, you know, for us viewers at home, I mean, um, you know, times had changed. I mean, you know, even me, I, in 1988, Bruno wasn't going to work as WWF champion anymore. And for same with Vern in, in Minneapolis. I mean, times had changed. You, you couldn't just say, okay, Dusty's the man. Dusty's the man. You can say it 500 times. It doesn't make it right. Uh, I mean, he was very charismatic, but he, he was getting older. Dusty was huge. I mean, he was like 300 pounds. He wasn't like the young guy against Billy Graham at the Garden. He, I mean, he he had gained so much weight. He had gotten older. I mean, it just father time, like you say, never never loses a match. I mean, it was his time to kind of wrap it up. And but they just couldn't separate the Booker from the wrestler, and it it just got to be exhausting for us fans to even watch all this. You know, uh, once again, you've given me a, a lot to respond to. First of all, I think in 1988, Vern Gagne would have said, oh, yeah, put me as our champion. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even kidding. <laughs> anyway, um, but, you know, you made a really good point. Dusty Rhodes took that company to places where, you know, at one point was unimaginable. Mm-hmm. You're right. You know, I, you know, they're going to the Los Angeles Forum and doing well there. They're going going to the Boston Garden and doing well there. Who who could have seen that coming? And you're right. It was all under uh, Dusty's wing. But at the same time, as someone who runs a wrestling company, uh, Jim Crockett should have been the one to know that not everyone. No, no one is going to last forever at the top of creative. Okay. Yeah. Jim Cornette. 
is one of he's part of the Arcadian Vanguard network. I'm not going to say anything bad about Jim Cornette. He's one of the most creative people I've ever been around. And if I were running a wrestling company in 1988 at at bare minimum, I want Jim Cornette on my booking committee. I want him on my team. Then Jim Cornette goes out and and starts Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And in 1980 19 excuse me 1992 93 some of the best booking you're ever going to see 1994 takes a little bit of a step back 1995 you can see the burnout in the one of the most creative people i've ever been around jim Cornette. he you know jim Cornette needed a break and and this is me praising jim Want some more praise? ECW under Paulie Dangerously, 93, 94, 95. Some incredibly innovative stuff, 96. By 1997, Paulie is completely burned out creatively. So, you know, these are examples that happened after Dusty, but I'm sure there's a whole bunch that happened before him. Hey, can't be a stick to wrestling show without me taking a shot at Ole Anderson, right? <laughs> Well, I mean, Ole was a great booker at one time, but you know, by by at one at some point, the business has passed him by, and and this is what happened with Dusty. Absolutely, and and just to bring some questions in here that ties in with what we're talking about, uh, Tim Ostrander Jr. says, if Crockett decided to pull the trigger so soon at the Clash and have Sting shockingly beat Ric Flair for the NWA World Title, would he still have had the career he ended up having, or would he have flamed out sooner? Or would the crowd not have believed him as champ? What do you think, John? Well, Tim, you can't do that. You can't put the the title on Sting at that clash of the champions. Now, could you maybe change direction and put it on him at the Great American Bash? You're gambling. Okay, you're throwing that Rick Flair versus Lick, uh, Lex Luger versus Rick Flair feud out the window. But that could have worked, but at the Clash of the Champions thing was was nowhere near ready, nowhere near as big a star, even after the match, you know, and we're like, oh my god, this Sting guy is really good and he's break broken through. In my opinion, you you can't put the belt on Sting and have him going up against the WWF monolith, which is Hulk Hogan slash Randy Savage. What do you think, Steve? Well, I think also, you know, part of me was when I was watching the show again, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, what 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 would have happened if they just let Sting win the match and put him over? You know, I'm thinking about the NWA or Jim Crockett fan base at that time who were more hardcore fans, who were more you know yeah. serious into their wrestling and like maybe the harder core edged wrestling at that time. You know, Sting was fairly new. He wasn't well known. I mean, he was a regular in the UWF. But uh, I think that those more hardcore fans like the John Hiscock fans that were sitting ringside at the match, they uh, might have embraced him, but probably more so probably would have thought he didn't pay his dues and he was kind of like a WWF light type character. And I don't think he would have been like uh, embraced by that uh, group of fans so much. Someone reach out to John Hitchcock and let him know that I would like to have him on this show. John was a really cool guy back in the day. I haven't heard from him in forever. Uh, but I, I, Steve, I agree with you. I think it would have backfired. Mm -hmm. I think it would have gone from, you know, oh, this young guy Sting with his Brian Bosworth haircut <laughs> and his makeup. Oh, he's cool. And it would have gone from, okay, they're pushing him down our throats and we don't like it. I think it absolutely would have backfired. You know, if you'd given it a little more time and yes, yeah, Sting, he got over, 
he was over like crazy summer and fall of 1988. I, I think giving him the championship would have backfired. Steve, let me ask you this. It's, it is now 2023. You've, you've had 35 years to think it over. Who would you have brought in to replace Dusty Rhodes? I mean, if I'm Crockett, I, like I said, after the Midnight Rider, there's there's no longer a choice. Who do you bring in? It, to be the booker? Yes. Um, well, I mean, knowing what we know now about some of uh, Bill Watts's beliefs and belief system, uh, maybe I would have had uh, bring in Bill Watts, but with with the caveat that uh, Ernie Ladd would have to be by his side 24-7 <laughs> and would have to sign off on major decisions. But uh, that probably wouldn't have applied too well either. Uh, but but you, you made a great case earlier for Jim Cornette and uh, maybe uh, like a, um, a team of like the younger younger uh, bookings uh, stallions together, uh, Jim Cornette and Eddie Gilbert together. I mean, they would have uh, probably been butting heads a lot, but, uh, you know, times had changed in wrestling by 1988. I mean, they did need to bring in some fresh blood and it wasn't like you could just grab, uh, you know, one of the old school bookers from uh, Roy Shire's days or from the LA promotion. I mean, most of those guys were, were retired. I know who I would have brought in as Booker Steve Generelli. I know exactly who I would have brought in because Terry Funk saw things coming. Yeah. And he was smart. Mm -hmm. Terry, I think, was in his early 40s at this point. Mm -hmm. And Terry was smart enough to know that he was in his early 40s and that he needed advice from those around him. He needed to know what was cool with the high school kids in 1988. He needed to know what was cool with the college kids. He needed to know what was cool with the kids who had just gotten out of college. And he was smart enough to have said, he would have said, okay, I need outside advice. I need people to tell me that like, you know, this is no longer cool. This is what's cool. And Terry knew his wrestling. And I'll tell you something else about Terry where he is different than Dusty Rhodes. I, I don't know this, but I'm willing to bet this. Okay. I'm willing to bet that Terry Funk would have been smart enough to keep himself off TV. <laughs> I'm totally serious. I, I, I don't. I think Terry Funk was so smart. I'm, I don't think he would have wanted any part of any of this. I mean, I think he just enjoyed. Uh, hey, I'm going to go film Roadhouse for four months, and then I'll come back. I'll do. Uh, you know, I'll do the the Ric Flair angle. I'll, I'll work with him for four months, and then go and do something completely different, and then go to USWF. Uh, you know, I, I think he liked. I think he liked just keeping his opportunities open. I don't see him wanting to sit at a desk and program out these feuds and angles. I mean, I'm sure he had done some of that in his early, early days in Amarillo, being one of the promoters there with his father. But I don't think he really had the patience for doing that at this point. I mean, I'm not sure. I can't say for sure he would have done it. I mean, he had wrestling in his blood the next year. He came back and, and did the angle with Ric Flair, and he had a staph infection in his elbow, and, and they had to you know rush him to the emergency room before Clash of the Champions 8, I think it was. You know, so, I mean, the guy had the passion for the business. And I mean, think about all of the, the baseball players, the football players who became head coaches. I mean, this is kind of the wrestling equivalent of that. It's like, look, you get to run the team now. And I, I, I can't say for sure, but I think he would have done it.
He would have been great, but I, I think a lot of uh, kind of like with pro sports. I mean, I mean, there were guys like uh, Ted Williams or Joe DiMaggio who were coaches on the side, and it seemed like the star star baseball players never really made good coaches. But like little fiery forgotten players like Billy Martin became great coaches, and so I, I'm thinking more like. Uh, you know, p- people like an Eddie Gilbert, who really wasn't a, a wrestling star per se, but he was somebody that really his whole life was wrestling, and you know, he would have really put his whole heart and soul into being a booker for any promotion. I, 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 I like I said, I, I can't say, but I do know this. I, I really believe Terry Funk would have been smart enough to have, you know, ever not everyone in the room, but to have Ric Flair in the room, to have Jim Cornette in the room, to have, to rehire Eddie Gilbert and get him in the room, to hire Paulie Dangerously and get him in the room, and actually listen to those guys. And I, I think. That would have been my my first phone call would have been to Terry Funk to see if he was interested in the job. And I think, you know, I mean, what do you really have to do? Okay, you can't live in Amarillo anymore. Or can you? You know, do you mind living in Atlanta and doing this and going home on the weekend or whatever like that? That would have been my first phone call to Terry Funk. No questions asked. I I don't even know who number two might have been. In order for a wrestler to have this job, he's going to have to have one of two things, if not both. Either you need to have been with the company and are currently with the company. So Tully Blanchard is a possibility. Plus, he's booked before. If you're going to go outside the company, it's got to be someone who has had big-time booking experience. Michael Hayes was doing a really good job in Dallas at this point. I think he... uh, it was him and Mantell, I think, were co-bookers in Dallas, and they were actually doing a good job in that territory that had a horrible 1987. Uh, Dutch Mantell is another brilliant wrestling guy. Can you bring in Jerry Lawler and work something out where he's still working in Memphis? I mean, the, the, the possibilities are out there, but my first phone, phone call absolutely would have been to Terry Funk. Well, it's, it's interesting that... Uh... You know, Ric Flair did end up being on the booking committee, I think, in 89. And then he did play a role in booking, um, you know, in the various uh, 10 years in the future after that. Uh, but, you know, he was the booker. Yeah, he was the booker. So so and he was and made a lot of enemies. <laughs> <laughs> right. and, and he was extremely close to Crockett. But of course, by the time he became booker, Crockett was long gone. But, uh, you know, it just um it's I, I i just i just don't know as far as um you know th- this is is really we're so close really with this clash of the champions even though we're seeing all this improvement as far as like all the young talent getting pushed and and you're seeing on this show with sting and and the tag teams you're seeing so many good things but really uh, crockett would be selling the promotion what how many more months after this it really wouldn't take that much more time no, I mean, it, would, it wasn't even a question. He sold the promotion, but he sold the promotion when he literally had no other choice. It was either sell or close, and he opted to sell. I mean, he was out of options. Um, you know, speaking of Ric Flair, and I guess this really goes out of spring of 1988, but that's okay. I mean, from everything I've heard, Rick was he's Rick was not put on this earth to be a booker. I mean, he was the head booker in 1990, and it literally, I mean, the, the, it exhausted him. I mean, you could tell it took a lot out of him, and he could no longer do it. And 
you know, like I said, he didn't know how to treat talent in 1990 as opposed to 1975 when he was first breaking in and the bookers treated the talent like crap. Like now it's 1990 and he's doing that. And guess what? A lot of the talent is really resentful of Rick's attitude towards them. It, he just wasn't the guy. Well, he, he was, you know, he was doing some of the same stuff that Dusty was doing here. I mean, he, he really had to protect his spot. I mean, he really wanted to be the, the guy, the promotion still. And, uh, uh, he, he must have been in a tough situation because, you know, WCW was bleeding a lot of money at that time. Uh, they didn't have the creative uh, burst of energy that they had with those handful of successful pay-per-views from 89. And uh, he didn't have a lot of help. I mean, uh, the roster wasn't that deep that year. Uh, I mean, they had some good talent, but, you know, it, he was really, you know, the dusty of uh, 87. I mean, he was really trying to keep himself number one and, and keep all the younger lions who are trying to take his spot, uh, trying to keep them at bay. Uh, a booker pushing himself first and his friend second. What do you know about that? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to gossip a little bit here. I'm going to gossip a little bit here. About a little less than two years ago, uh, we had Randy Smith on as a guest, and Randy's always a great guest. We'll be having him back soon. Uh, and we were talking about going to the Great American Bash in 1991 and, you know, hanging out with Pauly dangerously all night afterwards. And Pauly was talking about how, how, what it was like dealing with Ric Flair as a booker, right? And they'd be at a booking meeting and Flair would show up late. And Flair would come in, hey, brother, I saw you with that. I saw you with that, uh, that 10 down at the bar, brother. Uh, <laughs> do anything what happened. And Paulie is like, we're supposed to be booking. And we've been here for an hour talking about, you know, Rick and girls and whatever. Like, yeah, let's go. Right. And Rick was just, you know, always distracted. So, I, like I said, you know, and Rick, I mean, he he alienated a lot of people. Whenever, you know, you saw Mick Foley doing an interview, uh, off WWF television, they'd ask him about Ric Flair. I mean, you could just tell Mix his mood shifted when Ric Flair's name come up. He would say things like, uh, "Well, I, 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 res- I have I have a lot of respect for him as a wrestler. The guy, I'm not too sure about Shane Douglas. Oh, need, I don't need to say another word. Polly Dangerously, I don't need to say another word. I mean." Rick, you know, and, and those aren't the only guys, but those are the most outspoken of the guys. And just, you know, Rick was doing it the way Sandy Scott did, did it to him in 1976. And that just wasn't the way in 1990. Well, I, I just remember Ric Flair being so dismissive of Chris Canyon. I mean, yeah, yeah. Chris Canyon wasn't the star of the level of Ric Flair or even anywhere close to Ric Flair, but he was on Howard Stern, I think it was. And he was just like, like belittling this guy and, and treating him like complete trash. I mean, it, it was just so disgusting. I mean, I mean, if, if you're a Ric Flair fan listening to this, you probably weren't a Ric Flair fan after listening to this. I mean, that's how bad it was. Oh, wow. I, I have never heard that. I will seek the audio of that clip out there. But yeah, I mean, you know what? You use the right term, dismissive. I mean, McFoley in his book was talking about the Clash of the Champions match he had with Neil Mascaris, and Rick was like, you know, this match isn't about you. Right. And it's like a nice thing to say to a guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, you know, I, I guess he was, you know, Flair was taking the perspective of, you know, Mascaris was the one who was there to be put 
put over. And at the time, Jack was still you know, fairly new in the business. So it, he was just there to make maskers look good. So I can kind of see that. But yeah, these other occasions, I'm, I mean, I'm sure a lot of the Stick to Wrestling uh, Facebook group would say, uh, yeah, whenever Flair was on the old uh, WWF Roundtable Legends shows there, he was just like, he was just like shit on everybody. Just like, oh, you, yes. you know, everybody was worse. Everybody's terrible, you know, and he just, he just was just the worst guy to have on that panel. Even worse than Mike Graham. And that's saying a lot. I, I always liked Mike Graham. <laughs> I like Mike Graham in general, but anyway, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, Rick in his book talked about how his first son was born and Rick went home to Minneapolis. And before he did that, he's like, you know, can I have some time off to spend with my family? And I think it was George Scott who said to him, sure, Rick, take all the time you want. And when you feel like driving back, drive straight through North Carolina, straight paths past South Carolina and into Memphis, because that's where guys who asked for time off wind up wow something along those lines and you know it's like the abused child becomes the abusive parent it's exactly like that yeah yeah and b- being a booker isn't isn't meant for everybody i mean i mean maybe maybe nope. after all he accomplished accomplished in wrestling it was offered to him and he said yeah i'll, I'll do it and maybe maybe try to make the most of it and make the best of it but it's not for everybody you have to be creative you have to no. be disciplined you have to be many things and and i don't think rick flair was many of those things and and you have to be able to to work with people up and down the card and you know rick just couldn't do it he you know became he became george scott we've barely touched upon the crockett cup and i'd like to read this question from michael c hulse which format of the Crockett Cup, did you prefer 86, where there were teams from different territories, uh, even though a JCP, it was a given a JCP team would win, which is true, or 88 with nothing but JCP teams, mostly mix and match teams opposed as opposed to the established ones? Any thoughts on this, Steve? Well, well, definitely. I mean, as a as a fan, I would prefer the '86 version. I mean, it, it's cool to see these you know outside teams come in. I mean, yeah, you could have. Uh, you know, <laughs> Giant Baba and, and somebody we don't even know of. Uh, and maybe they're not a great team, but you could also have, say, uh, Rick Martell and Dino Bravo from Canada, you know, a good team. Uh, and and it, maybe Portland would send somebody down. Uh, I mean, it, it's kind of refreshing to see these teams from other promotions that you wouldn't get to see otherwise. I'm going to express a, a what I think is going to be a rather controversial opinion here, Okay. okay? The 1986 Crockett Cup, not only did I prefer it, I think that should have been it. Right. It should have been the end of the tournament or best case scenario, you have the Crockett Cup as part of, let's say, the Great American Bash pay-per-view, but you only have it with like four teams. Having it with, you know, however many teams they had in 1988, 24 teams all from the same promotions. You're having the Thunderfoot team in there. And, you know, the whole thing was ridiculous. The first day was nothing but squashes. And on top of that, 86 seemed very special. In 87 and 88, it felt like they put a whole lot of TV time into what just amounted to another house show. And it wasn't even that good. 
I, I always thought that Ric Flair should have been part of a tag team every single time to put it over as, hey, you know, I am forgetting them NWA champion on this night because I'm out to split a million dollars with Arn Anderson. Like that to me would have gotten the the tournament over. Instead, you've got, you know, a bunch of guys in singles matches and then you've got all these ragtag ta- tag team units. I mean, I may might have done something like they did with Starcade '89, where it's it's just your four top teams and that's it. Yeah, on paper from the magazines, uh, that '86 um, Crockett Cup seems super exciting, just because you did have these outside teams participating. I mean, you could kind of suspend disbelief and say, "Hey, you know, these are teams from all over the world. It's kind of exciting." But uh, yeah, we we knew uh, Crockett guys were going to win win in the end, so that only made sense. No, I, I knew the, the Portland team wasn't going to come out and <laughs> dominate the competition. Oh, Steve, you know what? The, the hour always goes by so fast, and I'm, I'm glad I kind of – this got me out. You see, this is what I love, love about doing this show. It kind of got me out of this like, you know, oh, God, I'm in a funk. I'm so tired. It's like, okay, you got to go, and you got to go now, and I think it turned out to be a pretty good show. Nah, I feel much better than I did an hour. Well, I'm, I'm glad you feel better. I feel better, too. I, I think we really talked this to death, but – uh, I hope the fans liked it, and I think they will. I think they will, too. And, and like I said, you know, I, I didn't mean to turn it into a Dusty Bash thing, but, I mean, look at the questions we got. <laughs> they were all like, okay, you know, when exactly should Dusty run as Booker? You know, when should it have been euthanized? And, yeah, when the, the, when the Midnight Rider uh, showed up and failed as miserably as he did, you know, if I'm Crockett, at, the, at the, that point, I have no choice but to say, Dusty, you know, we've got to do, we've got to try something new. And in fairness, he kind of did try something new. My understanding is that Jim Cornette was already, after Starcade, kind of booking his own program against a team. He picked the Fantastics. Kevin Sullivan was kind of booking his own program. So some changes were made, but the changes were not significant enough, in my opinion. But Clash of the Champions 1 should be remembered, uh, rightfully so, as being a great alternative to WrestleMania 4. And it was it was a very successful, probably the last successful Jim Crockett promotion show uh, of all time. <laughs> I was thinking about that myself. That was probably the last great moment in Charlotte that the you know, Jim Crockett promotions ever had. Or Greensboro, excuse me. Mm-hmm. All right. So I want to thank everyone for listening to episode number 251. I want to thank Brian Last for giving us this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does producing Stick to Wrestling. I want to thank everyone for listening. I look forward to doing show 252 next week. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. 